over the weekend, I spent about three hours watching these canned television shows. You know, the realistic kind, where uh, during always there's there's a scene where uh, where the cops wind up chasing the guy around the roof. Have you ever seen, you know, around the roofs of the buildings, up and down the, the west side there over by the docks? And uh, they shoot it out, and the lovely girl uh, who uh, winds up getting, you know, getting involved in the third reel, uh, he, he's tearing down the fire escape, and he jumps a- into the room there, and he's always in ro- the room with her, you know, this beautiful girl. Well, I saw at least seven of those over the weekend, see, and they're running around on the roofs. And I came to a conclusion there. These are called realistic television shows because uh, they're shot on real fire escapes and on real roofs. Wouldn't it be fantastic if if life really was like that? I mean, really, wouldn't it be? If if every 20 minutes you hear them shooting it out up on the roofs, you know, you go over in the 40s there, over by the roof, pow, 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 and Rocco the Lip, you see, is swinging up and down the fire escapes, and there's a beautiful girl wearing a shawl. Oh, Rocco, Rocco, please, I love you. <laughs> wouldn't it be wild? Oh. And, and think of the great headlines, and think of the wonderful newspaper stories. Every day you could pick up the newspapers, you know, and there would be there would be all those stories in the paper. But all these fantastic things, and invariably, in every story, it would say that uh, Rocco the Lip, while he was being chased up this alley, ran into this beautiful girl who had just come in uh, on the on the boat from Italy someplace, and she was a beautiful girl, had, had a strange, striking resemblance to Elizabeth Taylor. And uh, she fell instantly in love with him, and she didn't know he was a crook, but nevertheless, uh, in the last, oh, wasn't it peaches? <laughs> oh, what a, well, but once in the great while, though. Something pops up right out of the paper that makes all of that jazz look like kid stuff, but kid stuff. And you never know where it's going to happen. Now, oh, yes, by the way, before we go any further, I would like to say that tonight's text is not for women and children. And if you fall into either one of those categories, I suggest you go down to, uh, oh, WPAT maybe. They've got some nice... A nice ear-to-ear music. Uh, I, I imagine QXR now has a nice Haydn string quartet on. Uh, a couple of other stations got these gigantic recorded fist fights with these guys hollering through their nose. You might like that. And uh, you know, you got a lot of things you can do. You don't have to. So, so please, uh, without without kicking chairs over anything, please leave now. Now, uh, getting back to our text here, did you read that wild story over the weekend? Now, i uh, tell you how I, I happened to read it. I, I was walking along 3rd Avenue, and you know, along 3rd Avenue, uh, way over there on the east side there, all kinds of little places where they sell uh, used Victorian lamps and uh, elephant's foot uh, uh, umbrella stands. Hey, by the way, did you ever see an elephant's foot umbrella stand, a real one? Well, one time I'm in an auction, and uh, it's a great auction. And uh, I, I, I really dig going to auctions, especially auctions when they're selling some old recluse's estate. And, you know, they've got all this wild stuff there, and they're selling it all out. And the auctioneer is trying to make everybody believe that it's, it's wonderful stuff. And I'm, I'm sitting down in the crowd on the camp chairs. You know, they have these little stores with the camp chairs all sitting there. And up on a little stage is the auctioneer. And he's selling the estate of this well-known very ancient and uh, very eccentric recluse who lived on the outside of Cincinnati. He made all kinds of dough in the yeast business. 
So right there, you know, he's got a lot of stuff going. You can tell it, right? He made yeast. So this old gentleman had, had passed into the great beyond, and he left behind him a collection of effluvia, the like of which uh, the average pack rat could not even comprehend. And uh, here's, here's all this stuff. He had, a, he had a chandelier that must have been seven stories high. Just the chandelier. And it had cut glass uh, crystal balls and little cut glass crystal fringe hanging. And each candle, and this was the final, the, the, the little Philippe, each candle, you th imitation candles, you know, with a little light bulb at the top, each candle was held in a brass fist. Now get that, sticking out of this great big pile of glass. But you haven't heard the end of it. On each brass fist, right below each brass fist, on each brass wrist was a brass cuff. And sticking out of each brass cuff was a rhinestone cufflink. How about that? This thing was seven stories tall. I almost bought it for my pad. Oh, boy, 378 bulbs going all at once. <laughs> Held aloft in a brass fist with a brass cuff with a rhinestone cufflink. Hey, George, now, what, what, I, I say you cannot give up on mankind if he's capable of this kind of stuff. I'm just talking about mankind in general. <laughs> so, so anyway, I'm sitting there, and there they, they got this big chandelier up there, and the... The auctioneer is uh, up there. He's, he's pounding away with a gavel, you know, and all of his assistants are bringing stuff up. And he says, and now we have number 172, number 172 in the catalog, number 172 in the catalog, a genuine pachyderm, a genuine African pachyderm umbrella stand, a genuine African pachyderm umbrella stand. This is a pure piece of Victorian artwork, a very rare piece of Victorian artwork, and probably the like of which will seldom be seen again on the face of the earth. A beautiful piece which undoubtedly will go for hundreds of dollars more than we are asking for it this afternoon number 172 in the catalog. Will you please bring it up? Well, they put up on the stand there uh, an elephant's foot. Actually, it was an elephant's leg. Oh, boy, cut off at the knee. And, and there's this elephant's leg standing with the toenails. A real elephant's leg. And sticking out of the elephant's leg there, they had hollowed it out somehow. I don't know how they, you know, they hollowed it out, and they had a brass thing set down in the middle of it. And sticking out of it were a couple of sample canes. He's number 172, number 172, number 172, uh, number 172, a genuine pachyderm on Bellostan, genuine pachyderm on Bellostan. I guess he was using the phrase pachyderm because he figured that everybody, if, if they didn't look really sharply enough, would think it was teakwood or, or uh, something else equally acceptable outside of an elephant's knee. Have you ever looked at an elephant's knee, really? Cut off there at the top with an umbrella sticking out? So he's going, well, I, I'm looking at this thing and I think, bye, George, you know. You can't give up hope. You just can't give up hope. And over the weekend, I'm walking along on 3rd Avenue, and they got all these shops where they're selling stuff like that, you know? They're selling little paddle wheel steamers, and they're selling all kinds of, of, of just a fluvy, you know, all the junk. The, can, you, just, can you imagine what it would be like if mankind somehow disappeared from the face of the earth tomorrow and left all his stuff behind him? left it, you know, just uh, even better than that, I would love to see a pile of all the junk just the junk of mankind piled up I wonder how high it would reach, this pile how big the base would be, how much it would weigh, and how many hopes it would contain, how many distorted wild, strange, beautiful exquisite circumscribed dreams, all piled up there with those plastic streetcars and those those leather whales and those 
elephant's toes. Oh, boy. While I'm walking down there, I'm looking in the window, see, and I figure, well, this is a part of man that has no relationship to his action. You follow me here? It's the stuff like you drip off. You know what I mean? It's just sort of... It's, a, it's the slough off of, of man. It doesn't have any real relationship to what he does. Well, I'm walking along 3rd Avenue, and I come to this little newsstand, and there on the newsstand is a pile of newspapers. And I, I'm walking past, and suddenly a story just came right out of the page. I, I, I don't read. I'm not, a, I'm not a, uh, a nipper. You know what I mean by a nipper? It's the kind of guy, you know, that walks over and reads the front page of the paper and then goes on. This is a nipper. And, boy, they are the bane of the newspaper sellers. You know that the newspaper sellers learn very quickly in the game just how to place that iron weight? So the, uh, the headline sort of catches you, but you can't read it. You know what I mean? They, they place it at just such an angle so that you can get just a suggestion of gigantic dis... And that's all. No, no, no. It says 1,700 sl- X. And that's it, you know, with a big red thing on the top. And say, whoo, what's this? And you go over there. You can't just take the thing, you know, and lift it off and look. Because he's looking. He's standing right so you wind up by popping for it. And then all you get is the true life story of Marilyn Monroe. So, so anyway, I'm walking past, and there's this story. I stopped, and I bought a newspaper for one story. It was a story that came out of St. Louis over the weekend. Did you read this thing? An unbelievable story. It told about an incident that happened at night in the St. Louis Zoo. Have you ever been, first of all, in the St. Louis Zoo? You have to understand the St. Louis Zoo is not like the zoo here. It's not like uh, it's not like Central Park. Central Park Zoo is a is a comparatively uh, citified zoo. You know there are buildings all around it, and and things are are pretty much under control. But the St. Louis Zoo is is a big zoo, and it's it's in set in trees and so on, and and it's almost as though it's removed from from well, uh, let's say from civilization. It's it's a big zoo and it's a good zoo, but at night this is what happened. The the guard just on duty there fooling around sees a man, a big man. This man weighed over two hundred pounds, big tall guy, and and somehow he walked with a strange walk. He was walking very stiff legged, and his shoulders didn't move. He walked, the way the guard put it, he walked like a zombie. Well, you know what a zombie is? A zombie is more than a phrase. A zombie has to do with, with uh, all kinds of Caribbean voodoo uh, cults. Uh, a zombie is, is, in effect, a dead man who has been reanimated and who has been set into motion. A kind of Frankenstein. Well, anyway, here is this guy at night. And the guard sees him and he says, gee, you know, it looked a little suspicious. And so he went over and got a policeman. And just as he got the policeman, the man started to walk up a hill toward the reptile house. Now, this is a kind of a hilly zoo. It, it, it's built on, on planes and angles and there are, there are slow rolling hills with trees all around. And it's all set in and it must have been pitch black. But he walked up up this sharp inclined plane and the policeman is being summoned and the guard leaves the policeman area where he had called up for a cop turns and runs after the man now you got the picture 
The man arrives at the front door of the reptile house. And with, with fantastic strength, he tears the brass bars down that had barred the door, tore aside a screen, and ripped open the door and walked right into the reptile house, carrying with him a long metal pole, like a pipe or something. He walked right down the middle of the reptile house, smashing the reptile cages, one after the other. Well, the man behind him, the guard, is, is, is clinging to his back and hitting him on the head with the, with the butt of his pistol, banging him on the head, screaming at him to stop this. The man paid absolutely not the slightest heed to him. And the blows didn't even seem to affect him. He's just banging him on the head, screaming, and, and a policeman arrived, and they're, they're struggling with this man, and he just kept walking down the center of the reptile house, smashing cages as he went, until finally he smashed 46 cages in that darkened house. With that, he turns, moves right up the, right up the aisle, out the front door, down through the bushes, over a fence, and into a car he had waiting and was gone without a word. And of course, the snakes are all out and writhing. A half of them were poisonous snakes. One of the guards rushed in, grabbed the hole of a, a rattlesnake by its head, and shoved it right back in and, sl and, and slammed a, a box over it. There were 46 cages busted open. Luckily, he missed the deadly African black mamba, which would have really gone to town had he gotten out. But what a story! What a story. What makes this story even more probably frightening? Uh, speaking of uh, speaking of the fright, this is WORAM and FM New York. And speaking of snakes in charge, this is WBAI New York. <laughs> and uh, we're 40 years old here, WOR is. And uh, we show every year of it. But uh, nevertheless... Uh, uh, now, I don't, don't write in. This is I'm just talking about W.O.R. now. They know what I mean. <laughs> and I'm one of the family, so I can say it. <laughs> Shut up. So they... they I, I, you know what makes this story more grotesque than just... Perhaps uh, it, it's, it's a thing that's beyond, beyond your, your, uh, your imagination. In other words, what psychological dilemma was this man in? that made him break open the cages of snakes at night in the St. Louis Zoo. He did not attack people. We can understand men attacking people, you know? We can understand men attacking animals. This we can understand. But a man seemingly possessed, seemingly somehow with a great fixation, Moving through the dark, breaking glass cages to reptiles is, is almost... It's the kind of story that y you don't know whether, if it were written, uh, you want to know what now. What now? And uh, there was immediately a great search was instigated in... Uh, was set into motion in uh, St. Louis. But as far as I know, there has not been another word on the story. Have you heard any more about it? Did you hear the story? Isn't that a wild one? Well, I, now, now, if you're confronted with a thing like this, how can anybody say 
Now, this, this is one, one person, one human being. Remember, this is a human being, just like you are. Now, how can anyone try to pretend that there is some kind of absurd logic that man follows in his, his uh, convolutions through time and space? I'm talking about all of mankind, and I'm not even attempting to, to in any way, shape, or form, apply a, a, uh, an overall or a universal meaning to what this man did. He is a man, though. And he did something beyond the imagination of man. Even beyond fictional imagination, really. Now, now you can say, well, he, he, was, uh, he wanted to set the snakes free. That's why. No. That's a very bad explanation. Because from the, from the stories, from the way it came out, he seemed to be doing it with a ferocity that had little or nothing to do with snakes themselves, per se. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm sure somebody who is an animal lover would say, well, I felt like that many a time going to the zoo. <laughs> oh, no. Not quite. And apparently, this was done with forethought. There was a car waiting. You know, I've, I've often regretted not buying that elephant's foot. I really have. Because if I had that elephant's foot, I would put it next to my desk. It would cause great consternation here at WOR, but it would remind me of something. It would remind me of, 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 of snake cage smashers. It would, it would remind me of, of, of chandeliers with phony candles being held aloft by brass hands. Yes. Oh, lost, oh, gone, oh, Peggy. <laughs> but, but here we are, we're, we're faced with the reality of it. And yet, yet you know, you can't, you, can't, you, you, you can't slough it off. You know, people say, well, that's just a nut. No, that doesn't answer it. What do you mean, just a nut? You can't just say it that way. People have these beautiful little pat phrases that, that seem to be applied to everything, like, oh, I love, I'm in love. That's the end of it. Or, uh, oh, you know, uh, he's a man. They, have you ever heard that phrase? As if that covers it. That says something. Or, uh, well, what are you going to do these days? What do you mean, what are you going to do these days? What would you do any days? What if you were living in 1166 or 106? Yeah, what are you going to do these days? They're fighting all the time out there with their arrows and jazz. Crying out loud. That doesn't answer anything. Half of the things we say don't answer anything. So don't come back and say he was a nut. That doesn't answer it at all. Speaking of, you know, all right, now I'll give you, uh, how about answer, please, uh, number two. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, answer this one now. Put, you know, this one. No, no. Hold it there, boys. No. That's better. <laughs> Hold it now. Now, now we have great respect, of course, for for all the the storied knowledge, the the uh, well, let us say, the assembled attitudes. By the way, you know, speaking of the assembled attitudes, any of you ever read a book by Angus Wilson called The Anglo-Saxon Attitudes? A magnificent title for a book. The Anglo-Saxon Attitudes. We dip. Peer. 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 <laughs> oh. 
the last. Peers of the realm last night pondered the case of a noble lord who said his mother-in-law got rid of rats by talking to them. The House of Lords snapped to the alert as Air Chief Marshal Lord Dowding. <laughs> right out of Lewis Carroll, Air Chief Marshal Lord Dowding announced his belief in the vocal method of scaring vermin. Lord Dowding, a 70-year-old spiritualist who masterminded Britain's heroic fighter force in the World War II Battle of Britain, recommended an American book describing the system. He said the book, Kinship with All Life, tells of a man who cleared his house of ants by telling them of his admiration for their industry and their communal spirit. My wife's mother, said Lord Dowding, had a plague of rats in her chicken den. She, she practiced this cure, and the fowl runs. The chicken coops were cleared of rats. <laughs> we ourselves have cleared our house of rats and mice by similar methods. The lords sat up and blinked. All of them assembled in the House of Lords itself. Up rose Earl Bathurst, Undersecretary of the Home Office, who allowed that some people do have extraordinary powers over animals. But, but, but if we all set about acquiring the powers of, of Lord Dowding, uh, we shall merely push our rats and other vermin upon some other individual who does not have these powers. Oh, the wonderful spirit of fair play that exists among the English. Lord Dowding confessed that, alas, such was the case. On the last occasion that my wife's mother cleared her, her chicken coops, she found that next day her neighbor said, I cannot imagine what has happened. My garden is swarming with rats. <laughs> hold it there. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Stop it. Just cut it out, all of you guys. Now, look at it. If you really... If you really examine the case of the elephant knee, you will realize that there is a logic to it. There is a logic to everything. Everything fits. Don't you understand that there isn't a single itsy-bitsy wee tiny drop that does not somehow fit into the overall scheme? And as you're probably aware, the British long ago... Uh, in many ways, explored this theme itself. Oh, yes, boil and bubble, toil and trouble. Oh, no. Oh, no. Thou shall not push me beyond the cliff. So spake indeed the Lord, withdrawing from its scabbard his long, thin war saber. Oh, you shall not push me beyond the cliff. I shall fight. I shall fight. With my back to the white cliffs of Dover, I shall fight till the very last blood of... Oh.
News item date line London, February 15th. A court in Aldershot ruled today that if you want to drive your bed through the streets, you must display L or learner plates, obtain proper automobile insurance, hang license plates at either end, and install a braking system. Richard Brown, a 19-year-old student who did not follow these rules, was fined the equivalent of $36 and suspended from driving beds or cars for one month. He drove his bed, powered by a motorcycle engine, for two and a half miles through Farnborough five months ago. Uh, the processional committee that fined him uh, was also held for aiding and abetting Mr. Brown. Coincidentally, today the student, who is now in the Royal Aircraft Establishment, is the only known bedstead driver in the country. He was barred from the road. However, we were watching and will watch this youth's procedure in the future with a great deal of interest. All together now, all together. Hold it there. Hold it. Hold it all here. Hold it. Stop it. Stop. Hold on. Oh, oh. Now, now. It's just, it's just a... Uh, uh. Emotionalism will get us nowhere. I, did I tell you about the time the lady... Of course, uh, this, is, this is the kind of thing that you don't like to tell children. If there are any children awake, uh, I just... Uh, all I have to say is that... You're going to learn it somewhere. And uh, uh, there was this lady uh, who lived out in Cincinnati. I'll just tell you the true story of it. I, I might as well lay it right out here in the line. There was a lady one time when I was working in Cincinnati, and I saw the incident happen. I will never forget it because it was one of those things, you know. It wouldn't make the Reader's Digest, but let me tell you, it made my psyche. <laughs> it also made my day. I, I was walking, you know, Cincinnati is a very hilly town. You know, very up, you know, up, down, so on. And I'm going uphill one day on Vine Street, and you won't believe this, but I saw a lady who seemed to be otherwise normal and all right, riding in an automatic washer down the middle of Vine Street in Cincinnati, going downhill against the wind. This chick went through two lights and didn't do anything but just sit and wave at people. Well, I saw her go past, you know. And, uh, yeah, it was, oh, you're interested in what, well, it was a Maytag. And uh, I, I waved at her when she went past, <laughs> and she was, she was sitting in the clothes dryer compartment. You know, they have two compartments. She's sitting in the clothes dryer compartment, and, and uh, somehow I had the feeling that she had had a companion when she started out. And he stopped off somewhere. <laughs> and I just went right on, disappeared in the distance, and I never heard another word about him. I saw it happen. I was expecting to read about it in the paper, but you know they hush up the real stuff. Everybody's covering up. By the way, are you covering up? Oh. <laughs> Stop cutting out, you guys. <laughs> Speaking of covering up. <laughs> oh, well, I... Um... You see, the reason I told the women and children to get out, and I, I feel very good about it now, since it's quite obvious that the theme that came out 
Uh, of course, the thing that we had calculated would all along, and that's that that thin thread of the divinely absurd which runs through all of the actions of all of us. You don't think for a minute that that uh, that countries, big countries, big countries, I don't care, name any big country, really wants to disarm? Do you really? Well, well that's, that's all that history's ever been about, is wars and what happened just after them. <laughs> no, seriously. It's, it's like telling... It's like telling some guy who, whose whole world is, has been based on killing cockroaches that from now on he's got to give up killing cockroaches. Stop it. No, seriously. It's not going to work. And uh, it's interesting to note that every time there is a disarmament, any kind of disarmament talk, everybody gets all flustered. Everyone suspects a trick of, on the other guy's part, of course. And, and so, naturally, uh, people disarm even, uh, you know, disarm in the mind, and then they arm more in reality to prevent any such tricks like this happening. It, it sort of piles up one after the other until finally we wind up with, with tiny little bursts of impatience that have nothing at all to do with, with disarmament or armament. It's just kind of the bubble festering to the top, the boil on the, uh, of the psyche just pops like that, you know. And uh, there's the <laughs> this little thing, you know, comes out of the news. I mean, it just says, uh, you know, the letters to the editor. It says, Brooklyn, won't the transit authority do something about them fans? Why don't they do something about them fans and the new IRT and BMT cars? They've been in operation all winter. Signed a frozen sardine, rotten bums. <laughs> I don't blame you, Dad. When are they going to get on us? When is that? Oh, of course, this is all this is all part of the same thing. It's like uh, it's like the other day. I'm I'm listening to short wave, and and uh, I don't recall what country it was. It was Romania or one of them. They have all these English newscasts on, and uh, you listen you listen really carefully to this. And you begin to note that in the voice, there is the sound of a man or a woman, usually women. You know, they use a lot of women newscasters over there. These people really believe it. You know? Which is really frightening. Because we really believe what we say. <laughs> you know? And yet nobody really does. You know what I mean? If you carry it all the way to the furthest extent, it's just a lot of talk. I mean, I'm uh, all over uh, the world is, in, in fact, composed of talk. So everybody, we're going to shoot this rocket up now, you know, with a guy in it. And so everybody talks about all the scientific information we're going to get. That isn't why we're doing it. We want to see if we can shoot a rocket up. It's like kids, you know, when a, when a kid is going to do something, when he's going to throw a rock up in the air to see how high it goes, he doesn't try to pretend, you know, that what he's doing it is to measure air currents on rocks. You know? He just throws the rock, you know? He throws, lets her go, you know? Well, as as man gets older, he does the same thing. He throws rocks up in the air, or he you know, or he breaks windows, which is the equivalent of a war. But as he gets older, being mature, he has to learn all kinds of ridiculous rationalizations for it. This is a kind of uh, maturity, you know. We call it maturity. So he he invents all these economic things, and he invents all all these these wild, beautiful stories. Like uh, we have to have uh, 
We have to have the information on, on the upper air currents on the sporadic E layer there, up around the Van Allen belt. We've got to have that information. So <laughs> we wind up, we, it, nobody knows why, you know, but we wind up, well, putting $87 billion into, into a gigantic rock to throw up. And I can only say, fine. I can say there's nothing wrong with that, actually. Because what else is there to do on the earth anyway, really? Because this is the kind of talk that women, I'm not quite sure, understand, you know? Uh, because I don't think they have the same kind of itch that men have. That, uh, that, the, that the itch that men have to, to, to throw things as far as they can be thrown, to, uh, to fly up as, as high as you can fly, to jump as high as you can jump. All these things are tied up, oh boy, wow, biologically, psychologically, and everything else, with the problem of being male. Women don't have this problem, obviously. They have others. But uh, what they have, you see, men do not understand in an equal measure. Now, I'm sure that all the women who are listening say, what does he mean? I understand men. Oh, no. No, you don't. Any more than, than the man really understands your basic motives. Uh, we have a, a, a few little areas of, of common boundary we share, men and women, few areas of common, common discussion points. But it's like, it's like two, uh, do you understand what I mean, Ed? It's, like, it's really like two races sending uh, notes to each other, written in two different languages. <laughs> but, but vaguely written the same way, you know? So, so here we're, we're going to send these things up. And I, and I think, I think that uh, more and more, of course, it's not a matter of thinking. I know this is a fact, that more and more uh, psychologists are becoming interested in, in mankind as a whole rather than the individual ill. And uh, more and more, they're beginning to, uh, to, to impinge or to dissect that little area there. That, that little itch that mankind has had to throw things up as high as they can throw it, to see what'll happen, just to see what'll happen. You know, that, that explains a lot. If, if you say, if you do something, and you say, well, I just wanted to see what would happen. That's right. But what does it explain, you see? It doesn't really explain why you want to see what would happen. And so this, this, this incessant insensate drive for knowledge and for understanding of the physical universe has led us into some very interesting paths but we've never really explained why we want to know these things really now there can be some very uh, very loose broad generalizations and I might say rationalizations for example it betters the lot of man on earth do you really believe that? do you really believe you're happier than say somebody who lived uh, 500 years ago really happier? On the other hand, you see, the guys who live 500 years from now are going to have things you don't know about. Are you unhappy about it? Do you feel a, a terrible sense of, of being cheated because you don't have the instantaneous tele, te, telepathic method of non-communication which people will have in the year 2750? Do you think Washington felt cheated because he never saw gun smoke? <laughs> Seriously, you know? But we like to think they did, you know, that the poor old Jefferson left this mortal coil feeling cheated. Right, George? He just, just missed out, just missed out on Vista Vision. If he just stuck around, he might have seen it. And, and uh, yet, you see, the, uh, <laughs> the interesting problem here is one, is one again of time and space. The time you occupy a certain amount of, of uh, cubic inches of space versus the time and space occupied by somebody else at another, at another point on the graph. 
just as a big long line there. But nobody quite understands why we have this. This no, they don't. They really don't. Now a lot of people are going to come up with glib answers, but no one has really explained that one interesting facet of all of us, and that's this. That's this thing to know everything, to uh, to uh, just see what it would do, you know. Just see what it would do. <laughs> no one really knows about this. And if you're going to tell me, come up and say, well, they're doing this because, you know, if they, if they find out how it is on Saturn, they will discover how uh, they can better the lot on... Oh, come on. Everybody wants to go to Saturn? Just see what Saturn's like, that's all. Why don't we just admit it? We want to see what's there. Why do we have to come up with all this, you know, this jazz? Maybe they figured if, if we said the truth... No one would pay for it. But I suspect they would pay for it quicker. If you laid it out, you know. They said, we want to shoot a rocket up. See how high we can shoot one up. Let's get the dough up here. We're going to shoot this big one up there as far as it can go. And I, I, I would pay. But if they come up, you know, and they want to tell me we want to find out about the cosmic rays and about the, the number of times the gamma ray bounces off the, the number three uh, E prime two shield. You know, come on, lay off. I mean... <laughs> I mean, after all, my life is short. I just want to see how high you can shoot it. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's my attitude towards it, which is a terrible attitude, you know. Uh, I suppose I should have the proper 20th century attitude, which is the, the non-romantic or the academician attitude, where, uh, where I could couch all my secret yearnings in very involved technical language, which when all boiled down says we want to shoot it up in the air. That's what it really boils down to. We want to find out. Of course, we, we, we explain. We have gamma rays. We go, into, we go into quantum mechanics. We go into the whole routine, you see, uh, to, to kind of hide the whole thing. It's, it's, uh, it's like a giant speakeasy we're running of the mind, you know, that, that everybody pretends that everything else is going up. But what he really wants is a drink. That's all. I want a drink. <laughs> we rationalize all over the place. And uh, I, I'm... Uh, of course, on, on the other hand, uh, if, if people ever would admit why they have wars, for example, uh, we might begin to have, make some progress towards not having them. You know, any good psychologist will tell you that the minute uh, a man who has got a fixation, say, for example, an alcoholic, admits that he has one, really admits it, you know, I says, well, all right, now, uh, what, where do we go from here? Then there might be a chance of going, but there's no, 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 uh, there's no, uh, Obviously, no guarantee of a cure, but there is a chance. But we never admit this. I mean, you can't get anybody hardly ever to admit that. Why? Oh, what, 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 what do you mean? Go to war? We get a kick out of that, all that shooting, all that hollering on, all them fireworks, and people yelling, and fist fight and all that, you know? Is there one among you here who, who, if you saw a fist fight across the street, wouldn't be strangely drawn toward it? Huh? <laughs> And don't come up and tell me, well, it's because, uh, you know, you're, you're against war now because you're afraid you're going to get hit in the eye. Oh, no, I, I don't think so either. I think it's how you get hit in the eye. Isn't, isn't there one, one among you who, who never to himself has said, you can see yourself charging up the hill there at, at San Juan Hill, you know? And, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt's hollering, charge! And you're running up there behind him, you know? And you take this ball through your shoulder and you continue to struggle up there carrying the flag aloft. Come on. You know it's true. 
You know, it's a, one of the saddest sights of all is this little 97-pound weakling standing on the library steps saying how much he hates football players. Does he really? Or does he hate non-football players even more? It's very complicated, you know. It gets a, Why don't they turn them fans off on the BMT? Who's covering up, Wagner? Wise guy. I know how this works. Well, nobody's going to tell me how it works. I know how it works. They aren't covering up. They're not telling you nothing. You don't think they're going to tell you everything about what that thing is going to do when it gets up there, do you? Let me tell you, they're covering up. Who, who's covering All them guys in Washington, everybody, the big shots. What about that match? You heard about that match that they invented? You light it once, and in fact, you can light it all the rest of your life. It's a match that lasts a lifetime. They bought that one up, boy, and stuck it away in a safe. You heard of, listen, you heard about that guy that invented the motor that runs on water? They bought that one up, stuck it away in a safe. They're not letting nothing out, them guys. Not giving you nothing. They're smart. How'd they make all their dough? How could they sell their gas? Huh. Yeah, they're wise guys. Let me tell you, 15 cents fare on a subway? Let me tell you, Jack, it's going to be 20 cents before the year is out. And why? Who's getting all that dough? Who's sticking all that dough in his pocket, huh? I'll do it tomorrow. Yes, I will. Well, you think not, you watch me. <laughs> uh, now, this is a common attitude. You know the attitude? Is there anyone among you who hasn't heard about the carburetor that gets 40 miles to the gallon of gas and they bought it up from this inventor? They bought it up? Yeah, I know. You got it in a safe. Speaking of the safes, boy, I'll tell you who's got a loaded one. You ought to drop by down to the Mandarin house. <laughs> Wise apple. The Mandarin house on... 13th Street, between 6th and 7th. Who are they? Who are they? What do you mean, who are they? All them guys in Washington, the big guys, the big shots. Guys with all the dough. Who are they? You know who they are. Mandarin House. Some of the best Chinese food in this whole, this whole man's eastern seaboard. And they're open every night. By George, till midnight. They are. They got everything down there. They got all the whole works there. They're open seven days a week. What do you mean, who are they? You know who they are. Stop it, you're pushing again. They don't tell you nothing, Mac. Crying out loud. <laughs> Keep your knees loose. Some, night, some nights, it's awful, awful dark. You know, just, just remember that, just remember that elephant foot. And from time to time, remind yourself of the man in the snake house. And maybe you'll understand.